Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and this is All Things Tudor. Today, we have one of our favorites. Gemma Holman is here. How are you today, Gemma? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am doing great, thanks. I'm so excited to have you back on All Things Tutor. And I want to hear all about what you're doing. But first, let's say if no one has ever heard of you, how would you introduce yourself at a cocktail party? So I am a historian and author. I do lots of things to do with history. It's my passion. So I run a historical blog called Just History Posts, where I share lots of historical information. And I am an author. So I had my first book came out a couple of years ago called Royal Witches. And this looked at women in the 15th century who were part of the English royal family, who had all been accused of using witchcraft against the king. And obviously, I found this very interesting topic. It's earlier than the sort of mass of witch hunts of the later centuries. And I was really surprised to hear that women in the royal family had been targeted. So I sort of followed that line of inquiry and and wrote a joint biography of these four women. And my passion for late medieval royal women hasn't sort of abated. So I turned my attention next to the previous century, the 14th century, and the court of Edward III. And Edward III is, you know, one of the most famous medieval kings. And he's this sort of ideal chivalric man who he ruled for just over 50 years. And he was just this amazing king. He started the Hundred Years' War with France. He created the Order of the Garter and did all these amazing things. And there's lots and lots of writing about him. But there's not that much writing about the women in his life. And there's two very interesting women who I have now focused my second book on. And this is his wife, who was Philippa of Hainault. Their marriage sort of came about as a political alliance, but it's sort of one of the most successful medieval marriages. They were deeply in love and had this great marriage together, lots of children. But right towards the end of Philippa's life, Edward actually took a mistress. And this was a woman called Alice Perez. And she was a very different type of woman to Philippa. So she was a lower class woman. And obviously, you know, she's acting in this immoral position as a mistress. And she basically, after the queen dies, builds up this huge wealth and landed empire, basically rules the court as a kind of unofficial queen. And the two women are wildly interesting in their own rights. But I was also really intrigued as to how these two women who on the surface seem so different, Edward fell in love with both of them. And so I thought it was a really interesting way to have a look at these two women, look at their lives, look at their different backgrounds in life and try and see any similarities and differences between them. And the thing that I also found that was really quite important and interesting is that both women used their femininity in very different ways to get power at court and get this influence. So it's been really great fun writing about the two of them. So I'm very excited to chat about them. 
Oh, I can imagine. They sound like they're completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Let me ask you a question, though. For those of us that are into Tudor history, we're always reading where Henry VIII, everyone was descended from Edward III. What years are we looking at for Edward and his era? Yeah, so Edward kind of spans a big chunk of the 1300s. So he comes to the throne sort of 1326, 1327, and he's a teenager at the time. And he rules for, as I said, about 50 years. He's the second longest reigning medieval king of England, and he dies in 1377. So as I said, you're really covering the sort of main chunk of the decade there from the 1320s up to the late 1370s. Very impressive. And he did make his mark on English history. That's a definite. So let's talk about the women. Who was Philippa and how did she come to marry Edward III? So Philippa was the daughter of a European noble. So her father was the Count of Hainault. He was actually Count of several territories. So there was Hainault, Holland and Zealand. And so this is a collection of sort of independent territories that today cover sort of parts of northern France, obviously bits of Holland, bits of Belgium. It's that kind of region of the world. So at the time, you have England and you have France, but the Kingdom of France doesn't actually cover all of modern day France. It's kind of off to the side and you've got a lot of these independent territories sort of all the way down the west side of modern day France. These territories Across this period, they change hands between the English and the French, and then at times they're independent territories as well. So, yeah, her father is, at the time, count of these independent territories. They're quite small, but they're very, very wealthy. They have lots of trade. They have lots of really good cloth is their kind of main export. So this makes them really highly sought after as trade partners. So they end up with a lot of political power on that side of things. So her mother as well is still a very influential woman. She's part of the French royal family, so her grandfather is one of the kings of France, and her brother goes on to become king as well. So through her parents, Philippa has this really impressive noble lineage, and so it's expected that she's going to have a really important marriage to go along with this. Her two older sisters make good marriages. One of them marries the Holy Roman Emperor. So, you know, that kind of shows you the status of the family. And it's basically the changing politics of the English court that kind of brings her into the sphere of Edward III as a potential marriage partner. Well, was she seen as a suitable bride for Edward III? Definitely. So actually about not quite a decade earlier, when Edward was a child, his father had actually been in talks with Philippa's father for having a marriage alliance between them. But at the time, the marriage alliance was focused on her oldest sister, because, you know, she was the oldest one and and none of the daughters were married yet. But that sort of shows that she was definitely considered good enough to marry. You know, as I said, she's a European noble. She's a daughter of a count. She's part of the French royal family as well. She's connected to various monarchies across Europe. So she's definitely considered, you know, she's basically a princess, you know, although her father is a count, you know, she's that same kind of level. So she was definitely a suitable bride. But by the time their marriage comes about, the marriage is a bit more controversial because 
Edward's father had been in talks with marrying him off into the sort of Spanish region, getting him engaged to princesses over there. And at the time, Edward's mother and father were basically at war with each other. His mother, Isabella of France, had come over to the French court to try and negotiate a peace deal between England and France. But she was actually really unhappy with things in England because Edward II, who was Edward's father, he had some favourites at court called the Dispensers. They were this powerful family and Edward lavished loads of wealth and land and goods on them and did everything that they wanted. And this had really alienated the nobility and Isabella was one of these people. She'd had her lands confiscated by her husband and she was being neglected in the sort of rightful chain of power. So she'd gone over to France to negotiate this alliance and Edward had sent his son over with her. And basically, once she was in France, she had said, I'm not coming home until you get rid of these favourites. And there's this really big standoff between the two of them. And eventually, Isabella gathers some other English nobles who were at the French court who had gone into hiding because they'd fallen afoul of the dispensers. And they all came together and decided that they wanted to go over and invade England and get rid of the dispensers by force because Edward had made it clear he wasn't going to get rid of them. So they thought, right, let's go over there and let's just get rid of them by ourselves and then everything will be okay again. We can make things better with the king. And this is where Philippa comes in because Isabella was cousins with Philippa's mother. They were related. So they come up with this alliance where Philippa's father says, I will give you some ships and some men to help fund your invasion of England, but Edward has to marry Philippa. So although the family was considered good enough to marry the prince, at the time that this marriage alliance was made, it wasn't actually a legal deal because Edward's father, because he, you know, there's the king and the prince, Edward's father is the only one who could approve his marriage. And Edward had made it clear he didn't want that marriage to happen. And the couple were actually, because their mothers were cousins, it means that they were second cousins. And so this meant that they were too closely related to legally get married. So they would need the Pope's permission to get married. And again, the Pope wasn't going to sort of take their side. He would take the king's side. So there's lots of things in the way of actually making their marriage happen. But despite this, Edward decides to support his mother and he makes this agreement and he signs this contract that says he will marry Philippa within two years. And then they all set sail for England with this army provided by Philippa's father to try and get rid of the dispensers. So it's a really dramatic marriage, really. You know, obviously lots of royal marriages at the time were political, but this was much more political than most of them were. It really was. It was very strategic, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. You know, it, it shows the ways that women could be really useful at the time. Women's family networks were needed in this time. It was often the woman, you know, would go to the New Kingdom, but you would keep contact with all of her family. And that's something that Isabella really utilises here. You know, she is part of the French royal family. She has this cousin who's married to a powerful man. They're cousins. They can use this marriage to work together and get Isabella what she wanted. Well, let's go back to England. What was Philippa's reception like when she arrived in England? 
So it actually takes a couple of years for Philippa to go over there because obviously Isabella and Edward have to finish their invasion first. That goes really well. They manage to get rid of the dispensers, but they basically end up deciding that they're going to carry on ruling by themselves. And so Edward II gets deposed and Edward becomes king himself. But doing all of this obviously took quite a few months to sort of win the war, capture Edward II, decide what to do. Then Edward had to have his coronation. And then they were busy trying to sort out the kingdom and divvy up money and decide how things were going to be ruled. And then the Scots invaded as well to take advantage of the situation. So there's all these things going on. And so it takes some time for the marriage to actually happen. So by the time Philippa does come over, Edward has been ruling for pretty much a year by that point. Things have settled down a little bit. And there's actually a lot of excitement when Philippa comes. You know, the country's been in this really rough political situation for years. They haven't been happy with Edward's rule. They haven't been happy with his favourites. Then you've got a little bit of a sort of civil war going on in the royal family. So there's been all this turmoil and strife. And now they've got a young king, you know, he's 17-ish years old and, you know, mid-teens. He's young and handsome and powerful. And now there's this young bride coming over and, you know, it's, it's an exciting time. There's this young girl who can come in and can bring a new face to the monarchy. You know, Isabella's been causing some problems. So to have a new bride is a new opportunity and it's a sign of political harmony and peace. And so everyone's really excited. You know, she lands in England and she travels up to London and she spends Christmas in London and there's huge feasting. You know, all the lords and ladies of the land come to London to join her. The city of London give her loads of gifts and presents and food and all this sort of gold and silver that's worth hundreds of pounds. And everybody is just really hopeful and optimistic for the future that, you know, with a new king and queen on the throne, that things might be different. And so, yeah, she definitely comes to this huge fanfare and, and there's no hints that anyone's a bit worried about her or anything. It's, it's all a really positive reception. Oh, well, that's good to know. So as a bride, she was very well received. How did the people of England view her as their queen? So her first few years were a bit tricky, actually, because although Edward had come to the throne, he was still a teenager and his mother basically was acting as a sort of unofficial regent of the kingdom. And so she was kind of ruling more than he was. Alongside, she took on a lover, a man called Mortimer. And so the two of them were kind of controlling the kingdom. And they were really putting Edward and Philippa in the background because they wanted to have all the power and the wealth. So for the first few years, she got a lot of sympathy because she wasn't given a proper income. So queens were meant to be given a dower, which was this yearly income that they could use to look after themselves so that they could buy their jewels and their clothes and have all these servants. But she wasn't given hers. And so she was acting really poorly, actually. She was sort of on the same kind of income as, as lowly knights of the land, which obviously the Queen of England shouldn't be having this. And her coronation is postponed. And so there's actually a lot of complaints about this. You know, as I said, people have a lot of sympathy for her. And they sort of complain to Isabella and the government and say, you know, she should be given a proper dower. She should be looked after. You know, this is our queen. But as she gets a bit older, 
She has her coronation. Edward starts to take control a bit more and actually ends up overthrowing his mother and Mortimer and finally sort of seizing control for himself. And once that happened, Philippa has this big rise in fortunes. You know, Edward suddenly gives her the money and has her properly looked after, lets her buy all of these amazing gowns that the queens were allowed to wear. And people, again, people love it. You know, again, his mother had been unpopular and it's this fresh chance once again. You know, people have had a lot of sympathy for Edward and Philippa and they think right now that they're king and queen properly, things are going to get better. Philippa does a lot to get this reputation for herself. You know, she's a very ideal medieval queen. She does intercessions, which is where people will petition for help. You know, they might have been accused of a crime and so they want to gain a pardon. And so Philippa looks at a lot of these cases and she talks to the king and she gathers pardons for them. She gives lots of money to the poor she funds religious institutions and is generally just seen to be a really great positive queen. And this is especially in contrast to Isabella, who was just there, you know, wanting to get money and power for herself and didn't care about anybody else. Philippa is kind of coming across as a complete opposite and she follows Edward around. She does whatever he says. She's just there to look after the poor and needy. And so people are really appreciative of this. You know, they think that she's doing a really good job and she quickly, you know, gains this really great reputation. So, Jim, would you say that Philippa was a typical medieval queen? In lots of ways, she was. She sort of followed in the traditions of the queens that had gone before her. She, you know, would go in progresses across the country. She had lots of children. As I said, you know, she did her intercessions and she funded religious institutions. So she definitely followed in the women who went before her. But I would say that she was sort of definitely one of the more successful ones. You know, as I said, some previous queens had been seen to be wielding too much power or they had been seen to be spending too much money. You know, some previous queens had been in loads of debt and been spending far too much and were seen to be having too many flashy jewels and things. She was seen to be doing everything right and to the best of her ability. Obviously, as I said, she was obviously doing a lot better than her mother-in-law, who had been seen to sort of be transgressing some of these queenly duties. You know, a queen's meant to be there to support her husband, to look after her children, and Isabella had really gone against that. So Philippa was definitely fulfilling her queenly duties, but she was doing the best of the best, you know. She didn't have too many foreign servants. That was another thing that sometimes previous queens had got a bad reputation for. You know, they'd brought too many people with them from their homeland and was sort of grating on people at court that there was all these foreigners around. So, yeah, there's really no sort of contemporary criticisms of her at all. Everybody just completely loves her. So while she is doing what queens before her had done, she's the best of the best, you know. Everybody loves her. She can't put a foot wrong. And, yeah, really gathers this great reputation around her. You mentioned her mother-in-law and how she tried to hold on to power. Do you feel that Philippa was a powerful queen? I think Philippa was a powerful queen and... Very much in the way that queens of her time were expected to have power in England. So, you know, in the earlier medieval period, the queens could have a lot more outright power. But by the time Philippa's kind of on the throne, it's a lot more of a soft power. So Philippa isn't meant to be taking charge and leading armies and doing things in government. You know, that's not what people want at that time. But she is 
fulfilling the female aspects of her role to the full. And this then gives her some of that soft power. So because she's seen to be a great queen who's interceding on behalf of people, this means that people think she can get stuff done. So they will write petitions to her and say, you know, can you get this done for me? You know, can you get this pardon? Can I get this position in the, in the church? You know, can you help me found this college? And people expect that she will be able to do that. And because she's seen as such a good queen, she's then able to work within the government and call in favours from other people that she's already helped out. She's obviously got a lot of influence with Edward because they're such a close couple personally, you know, they're deeply in love. So that gives her a lot of behind the scenes power where, you know, she can talk to Edward in private and get things done. And so the way she holds the power is perhaps different to how we might consider power today or how we would look at the power of a man at court. But she definitely was able to do anything she wanted to do. And I think that is really the definition of power. She founded an Oxford college and she managed to talk to the Pope and get funding for it. And she managed to talk to Edward and get some lands for it. So anything she put her mind to, she was able to do. And as I said, this is all down to this great reputation that she's got. People didn't like her as much. And if she didn't get on with her husband as much, she wouldn't be able to convince people to help her. So because she's being this perfect woman, you know, she's being quiet, she's having children, she's being kind and saintly. People then think, wow, she's a great queen, so she can do whatever she wants kind of thing. So it's a really interesting way to look at how women could wield power at the time. That really is. I want to bring up Alice. Let's say she's the flip side of the same coin. Let's talk about her. What went wrong there? What went right? Alice is quite an interesting case. So as I mentioned at the start, she is a lower class woman. So she is the daughter of a goldsmith in London. So in terms of the entirety of the country, she's actually been born into quite a good class in society. You know, the, the merchant class had become really powerful this century. Trade was booming, and so they were getting a lot wealthier than they'd been in the past. But in terms of the upper echelons of society, she was a nobody. She didn't have any land of her own or anything like that. Her family probably wouldn't have had any and stuff like that. So she is, in terms of the court, very lower class. But she manages to find her way to court, and she serves Philippa as a lady-in-waiting. And that's what gives her access to this world and she basically takes full advantage of it you know she uses the connections of the people that she's met at court to make deals with them so she will lend powerful men money and then if they can't pay her back she'll say well I'll cancel your debt if you give me some of your land and she does all of these very clever deals with lots of people she's really good with it you know she knows who are the people to talk to, and she knows what they need and how to get it for them. So she starts to build up this portfolio of land. Once her relationship with the king starts, this is only increased because she's a new way for people to get to the king. You know, if they do her a favour, she might talk to the king for them. And this only increases after Philippa is dead. And Alice is seen to have even more influence over the king because there isn't that competition with Philippa. But because of the way that Alice is, you know, she is very interested in power and wealth. You know, she hasn't been born into it like Philippa was. Philippa was able to have all of this 
castles and land and jewels and clothes because she is the queen but Alice doesn't have that she has to work for it and so she's going to take every opportunity she can but that's not a very ladylike thing to do you know women aren't supposed to do that women are supposed to be nice and gentle and passive like Philippa was but Alice is sort of brash and bold and she'll twist deals to her advantage and she's not there giving charity to the poor or anything and so she's kind of seen as the bad kind of woman you know the power hungry woman and she's seen as especially dangerous because she's a single woman she's not under control of a man single women are seen as very dangerous in this period and so yeah it's very much Alice's ambitions are the thing that really sort of turn people against her. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Tony Award-winning musical Six, coming to Tennessee Performing Arts Center February 21st through the 26th. From Tudor queens to pop icons, the six wives of Henry VIII take the microphone to remix 500 years of historical heartbreak into a euphoric celebration of 21st century girl power. This new original musical is the global sensation that everyone is losing their head over. The Tony Award-winning musical six comes to tennessee performing arts center february 21st through the 26th get your tickets today at tpac.org that's tpac.org i absolutely love the fact that she was a negotiator that is so refreshing in history and i have to ask you how did she catch the king's eye so this is sort of one of our big mysteries really i mean There's so much about Alice that isn't known or that has only become known in the last few years or so. So we still don't know exactly when she joined the court. We think it was the early 1360s, but we don't know for certain. You know, there's nothing that says the exact date she joined the court. And we don't know when she was born either. We can just kind of make educated guesses based on various things that happen in her life. So she probably joined the court in the early 1360s and she probably was around 20 at the time. So she is sort of more than half the age of Edward and Philippa. It's hard to say why anyone ever is attracted to anyone. You know, sadly, Edward didn't leave a nice diary for us to say, you know, why he fell in love with Alice. But, you know, we can just kind of assume she was young. She was probably quite attractive. And she clearly was a very intelligent and shrewd woman, you know, to make these business deals that she did, especially with her background. She was clearly really clever. One of the chroniclers who actually really hates Alice. He said that she sort of charmed the king with her tongue, sort of basically saying that she was really good with her words. So this kind of suggests maybe she's quite charismatic and quite charming and witty. So it sort of seems that she was just a very charming, attractive person and obviously sort of had the right qualities that attracted Edward to her. There's no sort of hints that Edward had been unfaithful to Philippa at any other points in his life. Obviously he could have been, but no contemporary ever says that, you know, that he was a womanizer or philanderer or anything. So as far as we're aware, he had been loyal to Philippa up to that point. So this suggests that there must have been something quite special about Alice to sort of finally turn his eye after all these years. You know, they'd been married for sort of 30 years by that point. So I think as well, when you sort of look at the lives and the history of these two women, this is where I say that there are similarities between the two that you can kind of see 
where he might have found these good qualities in Alice that are also in Philippa. Philippa, although she was this ideal queen and a lot more feminine and fulfilling her role, how contemporaries expected women to act, she was still, you know, a very intelligent woman. She was very educated, you know, she could read and she had all of these books. Um, you know, she was probably good at music and needlework and all these other things. And as I said, Alice was clearly very intelligent as well. Philippa was very powerful and she was very headstrong and she would do what she needed to do to help those around her. Alice has these same kind of qualities and she kind of obviously directs that more at obtaining land, but it's that same kind of headstrong, powerful, I'm going to do what I want to do quality that, again, I think you can see in both the women. And so I think when you dig deeper, you can see similarities between the two, even though they've come from these very different stages in life. Was it useful for medieval kings to have mistresses, especially one like Alice? Um, sort of yes and no. <laughs> Previous medieval kings had had mistresses, but not really any like Alice. Often if the king did have mistresses, he had several. There weren't really any previous kings who just had one long-term mistress like Alice. They would have multiple women, lots of children. So one of the previous King Henrys had had a long-term mistress. He had been with her for about 20 years. But he also had dozens of other mistresses and he had 24 illegitimate children. So although he had a long-term mistress, there were lots of other women in his life. Whereas for Edward, he just had this one mistress and she was his focus. And after Philippa died, Alice stayed the only woman in his life. So after Philippa died, there was no one else but Alice. He didn't take on any more mistresses. So that is quite unusual. When you look at the previous two kings before him, so the kings that had been ruling for the last hundred years or so, neither of them had had mistresses whilst they were king. So it's definitely a very unusual situation. And it's unusual for her to have had so much power. Because there were so many mistresses before, they tended to be, as I said, just sort of casual relationships. And the women might get some benefits, you know, for being with the king and they might get some money if they had children and things but it didn't really equate to political power. And Alice is kind of the first one who really seizes this opportunity to make power for herself by saying, I'm with the king. I'm someone who is important. You need to pay attention to me. Exactly. That's my next question. How did she hold on to power the way she did? Well, as I said, she, she was a very clever, shrewd woman and she had used her connections to build up this huge property portfolio. She had dozens and dozens of property across the country. She had lands in Scotland. This gave her a huge amount of wealth. By the time of the height of her power in the 1370s, she was almost certainly the richest woman in England, possibly rivaled by Edward's daughter, the Princess Isabella. But apart from that, she would have been the wealthiest woman in England. And in fact, she was wealthier than most of the men in England as well, actually. You know, again, outside the royal family, there would have only been a handful of men who were sort of earls at the top of the nobility who would have had as much land and money as her. And so obviously that gave her a lot of power in itself. The other aspect of her power came from her relationship with Edward. You know, as I said, once Philippa died, she was the only woman that he cared about. And he let everybody know that once the Queen was dead and it wasn't a sort of moral issue that they were together, he lets everybody know really that he loves her. You know, he has a boat named after her. 
Um, there's a tournament where she takes centre stage. She is the main woman in the tournament. The Pope is even writing to her. You know, the Pope hears that they're in a relationship and he needs a favour from Edward. And so he even writes to Alice being like, oh, can you help me out? And so because she has the ear of the king, people know that she could get things done for them. And that has huge power. In the same way that Philippa had that power when she was queen, now Alice holds it. Because as I said, if someone wants something from Edward, one way they can do that is to talk to Alice. Because Edward was so open about the fact he was with her and that he loved her and that he listened to her, that's what then sort of kept that power in place. So was Alice able to hold on to her power for the rest of her life or was there a downfall? Did she have a fall from grace? Yeah, definitely. She did have a fall from grace. So it happens right near the end of Edward's life. Basically, there's growing unhappiness at court because Alice holds so much power and she has promoted all of her friends and allies. So there seemed to be this kind of clique around the king filled with these sort of merchant men from London who have lots of money and have been giving loans to the crown. People get quite unhappy, you know, a lot of the old nobility who have been off fighting the wars for Edward, they're not at court because they're fighting in the wars. So all these lower class men are getting all the power and influence of Edward and they're stuck sort of on the outside. So they get really unhappy with things. And there's this trial in Parliament, there's a Parliament called the Good Parliament, And they basically say, we're not going to give you any more money until we deal with some of these people around the king. And various men are put on trial and Alice is dragged into this and she's not actually put on trial. But Parliament does say one of our conditions is that Alice is banished from the king's presence. We don't want her at court anymore. We don't want her with the king And Edward is forced to agree to this. He needs the money for his wars. And in the middle of this parliament, his son dies, his heir to the throne, Prince Edward, dies. And so he's just so traumatised and affected by the death of his son and heir that he kind of is a bit of a broken man. And so Alice is banished from his presence, but they are quite lenient with her. They say, you know, you can keep all of your land, everything that you've gathered, you can keep it, just stay away from the king. Later that year, Edward gets really, really sick and it looks like he's going to die any day now and people are convinced he's going to die. He draws up his will. The Archbishop of Canterbury has prayers said for him all over the country and somehow he manages to live. And this seems to have sort of put a fire under his surviving son, John of Gaunt. And John decides that he needs to take back control. And he didn't like the way that Parliament sort of kicked out all of these people from his father's court. You know, he thought the king should be allowed to decide who's around him and Parliament shouldn't be telling him what to do. So John of Gaunt kind of lets Alice come back to court and be with Edward, which is completely understandable. You know, he's just seen his dad nearly die. And His dad, you know, Edward was probably asking for Alice, so of course he's going to sort of oblige to this. So she goes back and she's with him then until he does actually die, which is in the following year. But once he's died and you have the new king, Richard II, who's a child king, come to the throne, there's a new parliament for the new king's reign, And suddenly everyone's like, right, we want to sort this out once and for all. So all these people who were allowed back to court, we want to get rid of them again once and for all. And this time Alice becomes more of a target. 
because she had broken their banishment. Even though she'd been pardoned by the king and parliament had even pardoned her themselves, this time they decided, right, the king's dead now, there's no one left to protect her. And so this time she's put properly on trial in parliament. And she's accused of influencing the law of the land and going against orders of the council and basically orchestrating government for herself. She's found guilty. And because she's found guilty, she seemed to have broken the terms of her previous banishment. And this means that this time they confiscate everything from her. All of her goods, all of her jewels, all of her properties, all of her land, everything she owns is taken from her and she's told to leave the kingdom. So it's very dramatic. That is so sad. Well, what about these two women intrigues you? Why are you interested in them? I think there's a variety of reasons, really. I mean, I've been drawn to Alice for years just because she's such a unique woman sort of in medieval England for what she did. You know, obviously there were mistresses and there were fairly powerful mistresses, but there just wasn't anybody like her. And the rise that she saw from where she came from to where she ended up, just is so intriguing to me that she must have been such an incredible woman to be able to pull that off that, as I said, she just really draws me in from that. And, you know, Philippa as well, you know, she's equally, you know, not a woman to be messed with. I think it's important to look at women like Philippa as well, because when we look at history and we look at the medieval period, we are naturally drawn to women like Alice because we're a much more equal society today. And so we want to see, you know, the women who were breaking the gender norms and, you know, beating the patriarchy and we're doing all these powerful things. But actually, the women like Philippa, who sort of fulfilled what their time expected of women, are no less interesting. And seeing how she managed to navigate this world and come out so unscathed, people were very critical, even of queens. You know, they could still be seen to be doing the wrong things and not acting in the right way. And so the fact that Philippa throughout her life was just universally praised and loved, I couldn't find one single, even minor criticism of her anywhere, which is so rare, as I said, even for a queen. There's always someone who's going to complain about something, especially for a reign as long as hers. And so that interested me just as much as Alice. I was like, well, you know, who was this woman that just everybody adored and couldn't do anything wrong? What was she like and how did she navigate the court? And so putting the two of them together is just even more interesting because, as I said, on the surface, they seem like such different women. And I was just intrigued to say, well, what brought them together? What made Edward love both of these women equally? What were they like? And I think, as I said, by putting them side by side, you can really draw out some really interesting similarities between them that you might not have thought of at first glance. That's so true. And I'm wondering what you think, besides Edward III, what do you think connects these two women? I mean, as I said, I think it's just very much their drive to succeed in their time. Philippa wanted to be a successful queen. You know, you had to work to be a successful queen. And 
all she wanted was to support Edward and his goals. You know, even though the wars that he started were often against her relatives, you know, she lost relatives in battle against him. So this wasn't an easy job for her to support him, but she always supported him unwaveringly. Even in death, her tomb that she made was meant to be a statement. It was in Westminster Abbey, and she had this statement made with it where all around her tomb, she had images of all of her family from across Europe. And the idea was to show everybody who might see it, look at this empire that my husband made and look at how we controlled things around us. And so she has this real dedication and passion and drive with that to support him. And her younger years, when she's fit, she travels all across Europe with him. You know, she camps outside Calais when he's sieging the city and she travels up to Scotland in the winter whilst he's fighting the Scots. And so she is really passionate and headstrong. And as I said, Alice has very similar qualities. She wanted to be an independent woman who had her own means and she didn't have to rely on a man. You know, she didn't want to get married and have her life planned out for her. She wanted to control her own destiny. And that passion led her business deals. And once she had children as well, both of them were mothers. Both of them fiercely protected their children. And Philippa organised these marriages for them. And she looked after her grandchildren and gave presents to her children. And Alice did the same. She wanted to protect her children and have them make the most out of being the king's children. And she organises these marriages for them that are going to make them higher social level than she was. And she gathers pieces of land to give to them. So there's a lot of similarities with these women that, as I said, Philippa isn't just this meek, mild woman. She is also determined to be strong and powerful just within the way that medieval women were expected to do, whereas Alice wants to be strong and powerful and she doesn't care if she's a typical medieval woman to do so. Well, thank you for this. And I always love talking about what happened before the Tudors. Can you tell us more about your book? When can we expect it? The name of it? Just anything you can share with us would be great. Yes, the book's called The Queen and the Mistress, The Women of Edward III. So it's a nice self-explanatory title there. It's out in England in November 2022. There is a North American version coming out as well. That's coming out the following year. That should be April 2023. But I'm sure that if any sort of North American listeners are keen to get it, they might be able to get it shipped over from England internationally. But yeah, it's, it's very exciting for it to finally be out in the world. And, you know, it's available on Amazon. It's available in all the big bookshops, Foils, Waterstones, Barnes & Noble. So yeah, definitely go out and, and have a look and find out a bit more about these really amazing women. Gemma, I can't thank you enough for your time. You're always welcome here. You're a great guest and your topic is just one of my favourite. I love strong women now and strong women in history and intelligent women and you are all of those so please come back at any time and for our listeners thank you for joining us and thanks for making the magic happen please follow and subscribe to all things tutor and we'll catch y'all later thanks thank you very much you've been listening to all things tutor my thanks go to listeners my husband and my team If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. 
Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.